Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Republic, Book 6, Part 2. We must now look at the ways in which this nature is corrupted, how it's destroyed in many people, while a small number, the ones that are called useless rather than bad, escape. After that, we must look in turn at the natures of the souls that imitate the philosophic nature and establish themselves in its way of life, so as to see what the people are like who thereby arrive at a way of life they are unworthy of, and that is beyond them, and who, because they often strike false notes, bring upon philosophy the reputation that you said it has with everyone, everywhere. In what ways are they corrupted? I'll try to enumerate them for you, if I can. I suppose that everyone would agree that only a few natures possess all the qualities that we just now said were essential to becoming a complete philosopher, and that seldom occur naturally among human beings. Or don't you think so? I certainly do. Consider, then, the many important ways in which these few can be corrupted. What are they? What will surprise you most when you hear it is that each of the things we praised in that nature tends to corrupt the soul that has it, and to drag it away from philosophy. I mean courage, moderation, and the other things we mentioned. That does sound strange. Furthermore, all the things that we said to be good also corrupt it, and drag it away. Beauty, wealth, physical strength, relatives who are powerful in the city, and all that goes with these. You understand what I have in mind? I do, and I'd be glad to learn even more about it. If you correctly grasp the general point I'm after, it will be clear to you, and what I've said before won't seem so strange. What do you want me to do? We know that the more vigorous any seed, developing plant, or animal is, the more it is deficient in the things that are appropriate for it to have when it is deprived of suitable food, season, or location. For the bad is more opposed to the good than is the merely not good. Of course then it's reasonable to say that the best natures fare worse when unsuitably nurtured than an ordinary one. It is. Then won't we say the same thing about souls too, Adamantus? That those with the best natures become outstandingly bad when they receive a bad upbringing? Or do you think that great injustices and pure wickedness originate in an ordinary nature, rather than in a vigorous one that has been corrupted by its upbringing? Or that a weak nature is ever the cause of either great good or great evil? No, you're right. Now, I think that the philosophic nature as we defined it will inevitably grow to possess every virtue if it happens to receive appropriate instruction. But if it is sown, planted, and grown in an inappropriate environment, it will develop in quite the opposite way, unless some god happens to come to its rescue. Or do you agree with the general opinion that certain young people are actually corrupted by sophists? that there are certain sophists with significant influence on the young who corrupt them through private teaching. Isn't it rather the very people who say this who are the greatest sophists of all, since they educate most completely, turning young and old, men and women, into precisely the kind of people they want them to be? When do they do that? When many of them are sitting together in assemblies, courts, theaters, army camps, or in some other public gathering of the crowd, they object very loudly and excessively to some of the things that are said or done, and approve others in the same way, shouting and clapping, so that the very rocks and surroundings echo the din of their praise or blame, and double it, 
In circumstances like that, what is the effect, as they say, on a young person's heart? What private training can hold out and not be swept away by that kind of praise or blame, and be carried by the flood wherever it goes, so that he'll say that the same things are beautiful or ugly as the crowd does, follow the same way of life as they do, and be the same sort of person as they are? He will be under great compulsion to do so, Socrates. And yet we haven't mentioned the greatest compulsion of all. What's that? It's what these educators and sophists impose by their actions if their words fail to persuade. Or don't you know that they punish anyone who isn't persuaded with disenfranchisement, fines, or death? They most certainly do. What other sophist, then? Or what private conversations do you think will prevail in opposition to these? I don't suppose that any will. No, indeed. It would be very foolish even to try to oppose them, for there isn't now, hasn't been in the past, nor ever will be in the future, anyone with a character so unusual that he has been educated to virtue in spite of the contrary education he received from the mob. I mean, a human character. The divine, as the saying goes, is an exception to the rule. You should realize that if anyone is saved and becomes what he ought to be under our present constitutions, he has been saved, you might rightly say, by a divine dispensation. I agree. Well then, you should also agree to this. What? Not one of those paid private teachers whom the people call sophists and consider to be their rivals in craft teaches anything other than the convictions that the majority express when they are gathered together. Indeed, these are precisely what the sophists call wisdom. It's as if someone were learning the moods and appetites of a huge, strong beast that he's rearing, how to approach and handle it, when it is most difficult to deal with, or most gentle, and what makes it so, what sounds it utters in either condition, and what sounds soothe or anger it. Having learned all this through tending the beast over a period of time, he calls this knack wisdom, gathers his information together as if it were a craft, and starts to teach it. In truth, he knows nothing about which of these convictions is fine or shameful, good or bad, just or unjust, but he applies all these names in accordance with how the beast reacts, calling what it enjoys good and what angers it bad. He has no other account to give of these terms, and he calls what he is compelled to do just and fine, for he hasn't seen and cannot show anyone else how much compulsion and goodness really differ. Don't you think, by God, that someone like that is a strange educator? I do indeed. Then does this person seem any different from the one who believes that it is wisdom to understand the moods and pleasures of a majority gathered from all quarters, whether they concern painting, music, or, for that matter, politics? If anyone approaches the majority to exhibit his poetry or some other piece of craftsmanship or his service to the city and gives them mastery over him to any degree beyond what's unavoidable, he'll be under Diomedian compulsion, as it's called, to do the sort of thing of which they approve. But have you ever heard anyone presenting an argument that such things are truly good and beautiful that wasn't absolutely ridiculous? No, and I don't expect ever to hear one. Keeping all this in mind, recall the following question. Can the majority in any way tolerate or accept the reality of the beautiful itself, as opposed to the many beautiful things, or the reality of each thing itself, as opposed to the corresponding many. Not in any way. 
then the majority cannot be philosophic. They cannot. Hence, they inevitably disapprove of those who practice philosophy. Inevitably. And so do all those private individuals who associate with the majority and try to please them. Clearly. Then, because of all that, do you see any salvation for someone who is by nature a philosopher to ensure that he'll practice philosophy correctly to the end? Think about what we've said before. We agreed that ease in learning, a good memory, courage, and high-mindedness belong to the philosophic nature. Yes. And won't someone with a nature like that be first among the children in everything, especially if his body has a nature that matches that of his soul? How could he not be? Then I suppose that as he gets older, his family and fellow citizens will want to make use of him in connection with their own affairs. Of course. Therefore, they'll pay court to him with their requests and honors, trying by their flattery to secure for themselves ahead of time the power that is going to be his. That's what usually happens at any rate. What do you think someone like that will do in such circumstances, especially if he happens to be from a great city, in which he's rich, well-born, good-looking, and tall? Won't he be filled with impractical expectations and think himself capable of managing the affairs, not only of the Greeks, but of the barbarians as well? And as a result, won't he exalt himself to great heights and be brimming with pretension and pride that is empty and lacks understanding? He certainly will. And if someone approaches a young man in that condition and gently tells him the truth, namely, that there's no understanding in him, that he needs it, and that it can't be acquired unless he works like a slave to attain it. Do you think that it will be easy for him to listen when he's in the midst of so many evils? Far from it. And even if a young man of that sort somehow sees the point and is guided and drawn to philosophy because of his noble nature and his kinship with reason, what do you think those people will do if they believe that they're losing their use of him and his companionship? Is there anything they won't do or say to prevent him from being persuaded? or anything they won't do or say about his persuader, whether plotting against him in private or publicly bringing him into court, to prevent him from such persuasion. There certainly isn't. Then, is there any chance that such a person will practice philosophy? None at all. Do you see, then, that we weren't wrong to say that when someone with a philosophic nature is badly brought up, the very components of his nature together with the other so-called goods, such as wealth and other similar advantages, are themselves, in a way, the cause of his falling away from the philosophic way of life? I do. And what we said was right. These, then, are the many ways in which the best nature, which is already rare enough, as we said, is destroyed and corrupted, so that it cannot follow the best way of life. And it is among these men that we find the ones who do the greatest evils to cities and individuals, and also, if they happen to be swept that way by the current, the greatest good. For a petty nature will never do anything great, either to an individual or a city. That's very true. When these men, for whom philosophy is most appropriate, fall away from her, they leave her desolate and unwed, and they themselves lead lives that are inappropriate and untrue. Then others, who are unworthy of her, come to her as to an orphan deprived of the protection of kinsmen and disgrace her. These are the ones who are responsible for the reproaches that you say are cast upon philosophy by those who revile her, namely, 
that some of those who consort with her are useless, while the majority deserve to suffer many bad things. Yes, that is indeed what is said. And it's a reasonable thing to say. For other little men, the ones who are most sophisticated at their own little crafts, seeing that this position, which is full of fine names and adornments, is vacated, leap gladly from those little crafts to philosophy, like prisoners escaping from jail who take refuge in a temple. Despite her present poor state, philosophy is still more high-minded than these other crafts, so that many people with defective natures desire to possess her, even though their souls are cramped and spoiled by the mechanical nature of their work, in just the way that their bodies are mutilated by their crafts and labors. Isn't that inevitable? It certainly is. Don't you think that a man of this sort looks exactly like a little bald-headed tinker who has come into some money and, having been just released from jail, has taken a bath, put on a new cloak, got himself up as a bridegroom, and is about to marry the boss's daughter because she is poor and abandoned? That's exactly the same. And what kind of children will that marriage produce? Won't they be illegitimate and inferior? They have to be. What about when men who are unworthy of education approach philosophy and in consort with her unworthily? What kinds of thoughts and opinions are we to say they beget? Won't they truly be what are properly called sophisms? Things that have nothing genuine about them or worthy of being called true wisdom? That's absolutely right. Then there remains Adamantus, only a very small group who consort with philosophy in a way that's worthy of her. A noble and well-brought-up character, for example, kept down by exile, who remains with philosophy according to his nature because there is no one to corrupt him, or a great soul living in a small city who disdains the city's affairs and looks beyond them. A very few might be drawn to philosophy from other crafts that they rightly despise because they have good natures, and some might be held back by the bridle that restrains our friend Theages for he's in every way qualified to be tempted away from philosophy, but his physical illness restrains him by keeping him out of politics. Finally, my own case is hardly worth mentioning, my daimonic sign, because it has happened to no one before me, or to only a very few. Now, the members of this small group have tasted how sweet and blessed a possession philosophy is, and at the very same time, they've also seen the madness of the majority, and realized in a word, that hardly anyone acts sanely in public affairs, and that there is no ally with whom they might go to the aid of justice and survive, that instead they'd perish before they could profit either their city or their friends, and be useless both to themselves and to others, just like a man who has fallen among wild animals and is neither willing to join them in doing injustice, nor sufficiently strong to oppose the general savagery alone. Taking all this into account, they lead a quiet life and do their own work. Thus, like someone who takes refuge under a little wall from a storm of dust or hail driven by the wind, the philosopher, seeing others filled with lawlessness, is satisfied if he can somehow lead his present life free from injustice and impious acts and depart from it with good hope, blameless and content. Well, that's no small thing for him to have accomplished before departing, but... It isn't the greatest, either, since he didn't chance upon a constitution that suits him. Under a suitable one, his own growth will be fuller, and he'll save the community as well as himself. 
It seems to me that we've now sensibly discussed the reasons why philosophy is slandered, and why the slanderer is unjust. Unless, of course, you have something to add? I have nothing to add on that point, but which of our present constitutions do you think is suitable for philosophers? None of them. That's exactly my complaint. None of our present constitution is worthy of the philosophic nature, and, as a result, this nature is perverted and altered, for, just as a foreign seed sown in alien ground is likely to be overcome by the native species and to fade away among them, so the philosophic nature fails to develop its full power and declines into a different character. But if it were to find the best constitution, as it is itself the best, it would be clear that it is really divine and that other natures and ways of life are merely human. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>